Lucy, she's sitting at father's door, weeping and making mourn. Buying Kim her brother dear, what ails thee, Lucy one? I ill, I ill, dear brother, she said, I'll tell you the reason for why. Is a child between my sides Between you, dear brother, and I Hello there and welcome back to the Old Songs Podcast. I'm John Wilkes and this is Series 2. It's been some time since we last spoke, hasn't it? I think probably that's going back to around Halloween or sometime around then in 2020. So, ages ago. Uh, we were chatting to Rosie Hood about the rather creepy and terribly sad song, The Cruel Mother. Uh, that's the very end of series one. So you can head over to tradfolk.co to find that if you want to go back and listen to the last series or if you've not even heard it before. Of course, tradfolk.co is the new home for the Old Songs podcast. It's a website that I set up about seven months ago towards the end of 2021. Um, and it sort of covers off everything you might suspect with that name. Um, things to do with tradition, traditional songs, traditional crafts, traditional traditions, uh, rituals, all sorts of things. And we interview people who are involved with them uh, and find out how these traditions are being kept alive. Perhaps the biggest change and the most positive and wonderful change that we've had since we last spoke is that the Old Songs podcast is now being supported by the English Folk Dance and Song Society. Uh, which is great news. They're helping us to keep it going. And uh, it's also really wonderful to have them involved because, of course, that's where all of these songs are housed. Most of them, anyway, you'll find at Cecil Sharp House, which is the home of the English Folk Dance and Song Society, right there in Camden in North London. And you can go along to the beautiful Vaughan Williams Memorial Library where you can find all of these things, chat to the librarians there. They're great. It's been a bit like having a research team of my own, actually, in that I can send them a song that I want to look at. Take this week's song, Lucy One, for instance, and they will go down into the archives and they'll find everything they can about the song and send it over. And sometimes I'm able to go in and actually spend time doing that myself. And it's really useful and really nice to have a team of people who are really enthusiastic about this and know this stuff inside out. So sometimes they'll send over bits and pieces or I'll be able to go there and take photos of bits and pieces that we'll then stick up on our Instagram page, which is at Tradfolk, etc. So at Tradfolk ETC. Um, and you'll be able to see what we're finding there in, in a visual sense. So do have a look at that. Also, many of the artists that I'm chatting to throughout this coming six months that we're going to do this, that's about 12 episodes, are people who are going to be playing at Cecil Sharp House as part of their wonderful concert series that they do there. So if you're interested in traditional music and if you're interested in where all this stuff's coming from and you want to see it live, then North London, Camden, Cecil Sharp House is the place that you need to be going. And of course, I'm going to be putting all the links to this sort of stuff um, so that you can go and explore it yourself in the information part of the website where this podcast is being housed. Uh, that's likely to be on the tradfolk.co website, so go and have a look for that. Today we're going to be talking, as I say, about Lucy One, which is quite a dark song to be kicking off the second series with, but seeing as we closed the last one with an equally dark one, we might as well pick up as we left off. So, um, 
a few little bits and pieces for you to know. Today we're chatting to my wonderful friend and regular Old Songs podcast collaborator, Nick Hart. Um, he chose this song. Blame him if it's uh, if it's slightly too dark for your tastes. He's going to be playing at Cecil Sharp House on September the 28th. So you'll need to be booking tickets for that. And as I say, I'll put the link to that in the information part of the website housing this podcast. Throughout the course of the podcast, we look at this song, of course. We're looking at where it comes from, how it's travelled, how it crosses over with other songs, what's so fascinating about the tune, and why the source of the song means so much to Nick himself. You'll hear multiple versions of the song. In fact, you've just heard a fragment of perhaps the newest version of this song. That's by Frankie Archer, who's an incredible young musician from the northeast of England who specialises in traditional songs and uh, traditional tunes and does some really wonderful unexpected things with them she's so far released two songs she's released close the coal house door and she's released over the border both of which are so worth going and checking out on her Bandcamp page and her version of lucy one is not out in fact until september the 9th that's 2022 obviously and um we're really lucky to have persuaded her to give us a little clip of it so that we could kick this podcast off the next version you're going to hear is perhaps the oldest well certainly the oldest i could uh find so from the from the newest to the oldest and this is from the helen hartner's flanders collection at middlebury college in vermont and helen hartner's flanders was was a collector and she collected this version of lucy one from the singing of elmer george of north montpellier in vermont back in 1933 You'll, um, you'll hear it in a second and you'll have to really strain your ears to try and pick it out, but it's just wonderful to hear it floating in over the mists of time. Then, of course, we've got Nick Hart's version. We've got Spires and Bowden's version. You'll hear a version unaccompanied by Martin Carthy. You'll hear a song performed by Ewan McColl called The Sheath and the Knife, which bears strong relations to Lucy One. And you'll also hear a version by Jim Murray and the rapper Bob's. Um, so listen out for that to the end. And of course, right at the very end, as is the Old Songs podcast tradition, we have the artist himself, Nick Hart, singing us a very exclusive, unaccompanied version so you can hear it in its rawest form. I just want to say very quickly that if you're not sure of some of the names and some of the more geeky points that you hear uh, within this podcast, names like Cecil Sharp, Francis J. Child, Steve Roud, all of these will come up frequently and they will do throughout the podcast. If you're not sure who they are, that's fine. You can go to the tradfolk.co website and do a little search for some of those names. Uh, and they will pop up and we'll tell you a little bit more about them. Or you can go back and listen to the first series of the Old Songs podcast, uh, where we discuss them in far more depth in the earlier episodes. Without further ado then, I'd like to introduce Nick Hart, talking about Lucy One. And to kick us off, here is that fascinating old version of the song, that old recording of the source singer Elmer George, singing in North Montpellier, Vermont, back in 1933. Nick Hart, welcome back to the Old Songs podcast, season two. Do we call it season or series? I don't know. Um, thank you very much. It's very nice to be back again. So you've done some work before with the English Folk Dance and Song Society, haven't you, in terms of collecting, well, not collecting songs, but sort of compiling songs. Well, am I right in thinking they were songs that are from your neck of the woods or 
we did a project in Essex, and um, so I grew up in Cambridgeshire, but my dad was in northwest Essex near the Cambridgeshire border around the Saffron Walden area. And yes, we did a project that kind of going into various Essex schools over the course, it kind of stretched out over about a year, I think, in the end, on and off. Um, yeah, compiling compiling songs from Essex, hmm. um, which was great. Actually, some songs I already knew, some songs I discovered in the process, actually some of which kind of ended up in my repertoire, hmm. one, one of which certainly did. Is it things like Old Turpin and stuff like that? Bold Turpin was the one, yeah. Is that the one, is it? And that was the one, funnily enough. It's on your first album. It's on my first album, Nick Hart sings their English folk songs, yeah. Um, yeah, that was, that was a really nice project. It was really like, it, what was really great was like digging through and finding and compiling and tarting up old songs is, is my, one of my favourite things and, you know, is a big part of my job and is a necessary part of the process for me for like finding new repertoire. Or, so I suppose indirectly I do get paid to do it. But what was really lovely was just being like, F just being like, here is, we're explicitly giving, paying you for a certain amount of days to just trawl through the archives and, and find this old stuff, which was like, whenever, however old I was at the time, 25, 26, it was just like, it's great. You must have thought you'd made it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gorgeous. <laughs> and those, those are all available on uh, the English Folk Dance and Song Society's website which I will put the link to in the, uh, the notes for this podcast. Uh, but you can, you can find what Nick did there. Um, and also you're playing at the house, aren't you? When I say the house, I mean Cecil Sharp House. I'm playing at Cecil Sharp House on the 28th of September. Is it a part of, is it just a sort of straightforward gig? It's not in connection with the, the songs you've just been talking about? It's just a normal Nick Hart gig. Is there such a thing? Is there such a thing? Yeah, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Lucy, she sits at her father's door Weeping and making moan Along then come her own brother dear What ails thee, Lucy, one? So you've chosen a song and a half to kick us off, haven't you? Yeah, it's uh, it's a big one. Well, we'll get on to that. But yeah, <laughs> I feel like we've got to do this again, but with a bit, a bit more, a bit more vim. Sorry, I haven't had a coffee yet today. All right, let me just slap myself around the face. <laughs> okay, there we go. Great. Hi, Nick. So you wanted to talk to me about Lucy Wan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hello, John. I wanted. To, I've I've come on this today. Um, in the hope that you would let me, that, that you would talk to me about the song Lucy One. Are we pronouncing it One or One? Which do you pronounce it as? I pronounce it as One. One. Okay. I think. I mean, it's got lots of names, isn't it? It could be Lizzie, Rosie, Lucy. Yes, as with most of these, you could call it by a, a great number of names. I'm going to call it Lucy One because that's what I. That's the version that I sing, and it's also probably the most interesting version of this particular ballad. I think it's it's interesting that you've said at the beginning here that you want to thank me for letting you talk about Lucy One because I think, you know, <laughs> as the first episode of the second series of the Old Songs podcast, we're diving right in with an incest ballad here, aren't we? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, sorry. You know, I, mean, <laughs> I like the, I like, uh, I like, I mean, like maybe the wrong word. 
and maybe even the reason I like this song is not necessarily because of the subject matter or the narrative. I mean, it's horrible. It's a very horrible song. Um, but yes, it is. It does concern... It is one of several incest ballads in the English language ballad tradition. I'll dear brother, she says I'll tell you the reason why It's there is a child between my two sides It's of you, dear brother, and I Tell me about Lucy Wong. What's in it? The basic narrative of the song is that a, a, a young woman is crying and is approached by her brother, who asks her what the matter is. She reveals that she is pregnant with his child. So as a result, he, he decides to kill her and, and does so. It then cuts to a conversation between the brother and their mum, in which she generally asks why there is blood on him and he then sort of tries to explain it away before uh, confessing to having killed his sister and then provides the answer as to what he's, what he's going to do now, which is generally to go away to sea or something like that. Um, so it's pretty horrible, grim stuff. Your God's hawk's blood, it was never so red Son, come tell to me that's not the blood of my gay god's hawk but the blood of my sister lucy i remember talking to my i'm going to do one of my name dropping things now i remember talking to martin carthy backstage at uh sidmouth festival about four years ago and i remember saying to him what is it about the dark songs that you particularly like, the dark songs? Mm. And his, his eyes kind of lit up. And in my memory, it's sort of like they glow, like you know, sort of lit up. I, mean, I don't know what it is, but the darker, the better. <laughs> well, it's an interesting point, isn't it? It's like, it's a sort of an accusation frequently and not unreasonably levelled at folk songs is that they're kind of, that they're miserable. And certainly within these islands that does seem to be the case like the rep you know i've started, i've been singing lord bateman recently in my live performances and and it's uh, realizing how few songs there are that i think that have a happy ending it's such a like it's such a cliche it's the like route one bit of stage patter for folk singers it's like all right we'll do one fun one and then it's back to the old miserable stuff i just you know i've been guilty of making those kind of jokes myself but it is remarkable how larger percentage of the songs in this in in the canon are bleak <laughs> like <laughs> like what what is what is that do you think you could say them the, make the typical guesses that you know life was hard back then life mm. was particularly hard um and people would sing about the hard times to sort of get themselves through it but then you know life must have been particularly hard if they're having to sing about incest yeah, but that's, but I suppose maybe what I'm, I'm I suppose actually maybe I've phrased that wrong because what I mean is what's interesting is the contrast between the subject matter of popular song today. But, but I suppose the other thing is maybe it's you know maybe we're looking in the wrong place. Maybe we're maybe looking at popular song today for comparison is not as appropriate as looking at like those magazines, those like take a break kind of magazines where you read horror stories about. I accidentally married my brother, for instance. You know what I mean? There's a lot of the things in folk songs which wouldn't be massively out of place in 
you know, the headlines of those mad, trashy magazines. That yeah, I remember when I was first getting into traditional music and people would say to me, well, they were a bit like the news. song." And I think now more, I know more about it. They're talking largely about sort of broadsides, you know. And I think you've just put an extra t- twist on that. People would sing the trashy magazines of their time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, even the, you know, this song. This is obviously a very old ballad, so no one was, you know. But I suppose it's this le- this leaning into something sensational and awful and horrifying. We have an appetite for that today. We just don't use sort of song as the medium for delivering it. So we've got um, Lucy Wan. Just let's give it its numbers, as we so like to do here on the Old Songs Podcast. <laughs> Child fifty one. Am I correct? You're correct. I, I have been incorrect before and had people tell me. Uh, and I think that's round two, three, four. Yeah. Not that, not that there's a correlation between the two numbers. It's not like one multiplied by the other comes to this. Interest, interestingly, I've, I think I might have... <laughs> this is... I, I caught myself doing this yesterday and thought, my God, what a dreary man I am. So, <laughs> so I've, I've made a list here, which we'll get onto later, of related like songs songs that have some similarities of the ballads with this um all of which have child numbers as well as round numbers and i found i I found what i think might be the greatest distance between the two so for instance child 51 round 234 not that far uh one of them we'll look at later is like child number child 49 round 38 right generally speaking like Steve Rowd's numbers, the, the, the higher the number, the more obscure the song, basically, roughly speaking. But I found one, which is Child 16, Rowd 3960. <laughs> I was thinking, I wonder, I wonder how I would go about finding the song with the greatest distance like, between them, between the Rowd. And I was like, why, why, why on earth, what on earth makes you think you have time to do that? <laughs> pathetic, pathetic man. <laughs> well, you continue to surprise me in wonderful ways, Nick. Thanks, mate. You've plumbed new depths now. Oh, the, I'm finding new, new things to keep me awake at night. Every, <laughs> every month there seems to be a new one, John. I wish it, I wish it would, I wish it would, just how to sing ballads. <laughs> One entries in the Vaughan Williams Memorial Library, which is at Cecil Sharp House, of course. Only five of which were collected in the UK, I believe, including the version that you you've got a particular thing for, which we'll come on to mm. shortly. Um, it was collected as Rosie Ann in the New Forest in Hampshire, Lucy Wan in uh, one, sorry, in Winchester, also Hampshire. Hampshire seems to have had a thing for it near Glengarnock Castle in Scotland, where she was Lizzie Anne and Rosie Anne. Also on the banks of Loch Tay, where she was Lizzie Wan and Rosie Anne again. Then over into the eastern United States, where she's collected, I mean, more times than any in the UK, but in Vermont alone. So six times in Vermont alone. Mm. And then again in Kentucky and Charlotte and then Gainesville, Florida, where she's Fair Lucy, amongst other names. What's very interesting is that there's 
it's very obviously old it's very obviously well scattered about and yet so f- and so re- so rarely collected i mean 41 is not very many it's not is it times for a song to be to have been collected you know the the distribution is really interesting there are no irish versions is that right i couldn't see any um for me what it suggests when you see when you see those distributions all along the eastern seaboard of the united states then you know, it suggests that it, it got there a, f- a fair old time ago. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's a it's a really it's a really interesting and enigmatic song, and um, and interestingly, the fact that you know that that's also fascinating that it's re- that it's Lucy One and Rosie Ann both in England and Scotland. Mm, in Scotland, you know I mean? both in Scotland in one case, like within a few miles of each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you say in Hampshire, there's a Lucy One and a and a Rosie Ann as well. In Hampshire, there was. Uh, yeah, Rosie Ann in New Forest and Lucy One in Winchester, and that's probably only about 15, 20 miles apart. So. Very interesting. Very interesting. What does that I mean? What could that be? Could that be that did the song mutate and then got sent around again, you know, in various places as Rosie Ann or the other way around or something? Well, I mean, it's, it's quite a controversial one in terms of its history. In the early 20th century, when it started being picked up again, particularly by people like George Gardner and... Cecil Sharp and in the States, Helen Hartness Flanders. There was quite a lot of debate about whether it was actually as old as people thought it was. Let's come back to, to that in a minute. I, I'm interested in the version that you particularly like and that you recorded on Nick Hart Sings 10 English folk songs. So, yes, this version, I first heard someone singing this kind of version where Spies and Bowden did a version of it. And I think. Jim Murray did a version of it as well. It wasn't until a couple of years later that I went to a talk by Mary Humphreys at Sidmouth Folk Festival, I think it was. This would have been about, I don't know, 12 or so years ago now. Um, specifically talking about Lucy Wan? Or about- specifically talking about songs from Cambridgeshire. Right. So, so I grew up in the city of Cambridge. Um, Mary Humphreys at the time was living in Cambridgeshire. Uh, but yes, and she was talking about amongst other things, that song. It's only then I realised that that's where it came from. This version was collected in Cottenham from a woman called Charlotte Dan. Cottenham is is one of the villages on one of what is what's called the Fen Edge villages. So obviously before the Fens were drained, the Fens, for those who are not aware, are a large area of land that covers North Cambridgeshire, well, covers sort of half of Cambridgeshire, uh, South Lincolnshire, bits of West Norfolk, tiny bit of Suffolk. And it's, you know, it's a sort of a type of wetland, obviously, originally, but were, were largely drained um, in the 18th and 19th centuries. Before that, you know, before they were drained, they were a kind of barely habitable landscape. So Ely, the city, was an island, the Isle of Ely, sitting in the middle of the Fens. So most of the settlements in the Fens, lots of the settlements in the Fens are kind of new. It's a very eerie, odd place. But what you, of course, do get is lots of villages that were on the right around the edge of the Fens, which are known as the Fen Edge villages in Cambridgeshire. So Cottenham is one of the Fen Edge villages. There's a woman called Ella Bull who plays a very interesting part in this story. So Ella Bull was the daughter of a prosperous fruit farmer and she was one of I think four daughters that he had um, two of which were blind and one was partially sighted so Ella Bull was herself blind I think blind from birth. Interestingly Charlotte Dan 
the the singer that we get this song from was uh, working in the house, was like a domestic servant in the house. Mm. So I think Ella Bull became interested in folk songs somehow. This is sort of, we're talking end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century here. I think, it's, was it Percy Merrick that she ended up... Um, yeah, William Percy Merrick. William Percy Merrick. Now, William Percy Merrick was interestingly partially cited. And I, in, I think there is some connection that he, he and her father, Ella Bull's father, were both kind of involved in in the sort of creation of an early sort of form of Braille, I think. Mm. So that might have been the connection there. So she was sort of sending songs to him um, that she remembered from from her childhood, from Charlotte Dan having sung them to her. Mm. Um, she then ended up corresponding with Lucy Broadwood as well. And I think in the course of corresponding with Lucy Broadwood, ended up going back to visit Charlotte Dan to sort of make amendments and actually add more verses to some she of the songs. something like she didn't... She hadn't realised at the time that 3-4, the time signature, existed. 5-4. Uh, 5-4, sorry. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a really interesting point, that, about the way things were collected and the reliability of them as sources, in that, yes, for her, she sort of was trying to work out how to make sense of these songs, which might be best expressed in as being in 5-4. Um, she was and trying to force maybe, them into common time, wasn't she? Yeah, exactly. So sort of trying to put, you know, a fermata at the end of each four beat bar or whatever, mm. to sort of try and add a sense of an extra, you know, length to it or whatever. Um, but it, I think it was Merrick who suggested that, that she write it in 5-4 because that's the thing that best suits it. But it, yeah, it's this thing she talks about her feeling sort of that, that it wasn't available, that that wasn't the thing you could do, that it wasn't extant. It really gets to the to the heart of sort of this issue of musically educated people trying to make sense of this music, which didn't necessarily fit into um, the conventions of, of established Western musics. The, the, I'm leafing through Mary Humphrey's book, Folk Songs Collected in Cambridgeshire, many of which are from Charlotte Dan. Uh, one of which is There is an Alehouse, which Mary Humphreys has rendered in 5-4 here, which makes perfect sense. You also had versions of things like Spencer the Rover as well, didn't she? So quite well-known songs. Quite well-known songs, yeah. Yeah, I mean, There is an Alehouse is a pretty well-known one. Mm. Lots of kind of predictable 19th century stuff. The version of The Nutting Girl, I think she had. Cuckoo and the Nightingale, which is another sort of boy and a girl have it off with each other and, and make a baby. One of those, you know, songs with lots of birds tweeting and all that sort of stuff. One of them ones, <laughs> you know. Let, let's be honest, like fine, but not the most valuable assets in our kind but of... But the song's story doesn't really end there, does it? Because from what I understand, Ella Bull, when she realised that she hadn't been taking it down right, she contacted Lucy Broadwood and asked her not to publish the song mm -hmm. and then went back uh i think and tried again to take them down and then lucy broadwood didn't publish anyway was right seemed to have lost interest and then suddenly ralph Vaughan williams turns up it's like that bit isn't it where like you know one of those american films where the uh the local sheriff is dealing with an issue and then all of a sudden the fbi turn up We'll we'll take it from here. Thanks very much. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like RVWs <laughs> on the scene. Plop, yeah, plopped in. <laughs> but he doesn't do very much with it either, does he? I mean, he's like it says the notes that I've got sort of say that he he went back and actually collected from Charlotte Dan herself in 1907, possibly. Um, like certainly versions of her songs turned up in his work later on after he had spent a period in Cambridge 
sort of living mm. fairly near her. And then nothing happens again until about 1932, when Merrick finally manages to publish Dan's version of Lucy One in the English Folk Dance and Song Society journal. And then it was republished in a Penguin book of English folk songs. And that's the version that Martin Carthy eventually recorded on Biker Hill in 1967. But he thought that he'd learnt it from Bert Lloyd, from A.L. Lloyd, who, you know, nobody's ever quite sure where he gets his songs from. <laughs> and he's drawn out his gun broadsword that hung a low down by his knee. And he has cut it off on Lucy Wong's head and her fair body in three. And then I think, you know, as with a lot of these songs, once Martin Carthy got hold of it and recorded it, then a lot of other people start getting in hold of it and recording it. Interesting to me, though, that you had not or don't remember having heard Martin Carthy's version, given yeah. what a fan you are. Given that I'm nominally a devotee. Yeah, I don't know why I'd never heard it. I think, I f- I think I know why. I think it's because I don't like that album. Oh. Is it one of the albums that's very Dave Swarbrick heavy? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... Is there it's a lot of Dave under, Swarbrick on that album? And under his name and Dave Swarbrick. So I think those first two Martin Carthy albums are usually credited to both of them. Yeah, I think I, I think my problem is I struggle. I just, um, and lots of people will have a go at me for this, but I just hate the sound of Dave Swarbrick's fiddle playing. Wow. There, I've said it. You've said it. I mean, I don't think you're the first to say it, but... Uh, I mean, it's it, yeah. slightly sacrilegious, isn't it? I don't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I just don't like. It. I just find it unpleasant to listen to. Um, so, and that's fine. I'm allowed and to, aren't I? Absolutely, you are. Yeah. Um, uh, so, I think that's maybe why I've never heard that. I think I've, it's not my favourite period of Martin Carthy. Hmm. Wait. I like him. I like him a little older, a little softer in the voice so all the correspondence with uh well certainly with lucy broadwood um that we mentioned during that little bit about ella bull and charlotte dan mm. uh, is all housed at the vaughan williams memorial library in cecil sharp house so people can go and have a look at it in its original form if they want to you mentioned at the beginning of this the connections with other songs because it it's it's got ins and outs hasn't it it's sort of so this long list that you made at the beginning with the massively diverging numbers, that moment of mathematical genius that you that you happened upon. Um, tell me about that. What did you pick up particularly? So I was looking in Child, like, which is to say the English and Scottish popular ballads compiled by Francis James Child. Um, Child gives it uh, number 51. Um, which he refers to as Lizzie, Lizzie One, Lizzie One. He gives a couple of versions of it, one which is decidedly more th- th- thicker Scots than the other. Interestingly, one of them is Lizzie and one of them is Rosie. And and actually, what's really interesting is how similar it is to the English versions, how the, the first verse is, is almost identical, even though it's in Scots, but it's like a literal translation. So what's lovely is this. Rosie, she sat in a... S- in a simmer bower, greeting and making great mean, great greeting meaning crying, obviously making great, great moan, which is, which is, which is an odd phrase in English, making moan. But that's what in all the English versions I've found, or certainly my one, has the same the same phrase. You know, isn't it that sort of thing that's quite attractive as well? Though 
making great mo- yeah making moan yeah isn't it brilliant like yeah. that you know anyway love this sort of stuff um should i just read you what child says about this song? go for it so in child he kind of most of the notes he, he gives are about comparing it to danish and swedish songs uh child describes uh, Mr. Grundtvig, who's did a study of English and, and Scottish folk songs, he, according to Child, subjoins a Danish ballad, Leden Ellen og Henders Broder. This editor has three versions differing but little and all of slight poetical value, and he prints one which was committed to writing some 60 or 70 years ago with some reading from the others. Lyddon Jensen, having killed Lyddon Ellen in a wood, pretends to his mother that she had gone off with some knights. He is betrayed by blood on his clothes, confesses the truth, and is condemned to be burned. But yes, I mean, so Child compares it to um, the Trois Brothers, which I don't necessarily see much of a resemblance to. Other songs that it definitely is very similar to is like a song like Edward, yeah. Child 13, Round 200. Yeah. Um, in which generally uh, it's generally uh, two bro- two brothers, one has killed the other, and it it's, it takes that same form, the conversation between the son and the mother. Interestingly, even even songs like Lord Randall takes that form as well, a, a conversation between a son and his mother. I mean, you do uh, Lord Randall as John Riley, don't you? My version is John Riley. Interestingly, a Cambridgeshire version as well. Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? That that why that should be such a Form. Bob Dylan did it as Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. He took Lord Yeah, Randall yeah. To... Where have you been, my blue-eyed son? Blue-eyed son. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's a great form. A, a boy's best friend is his mother. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you could make some ballads out of the conversations I have with my mum. <laughs> um, so, that's, so that's some obvious, interesting ones kind of in terms of the form. In terms of subject matter, there are others like um, the Bonnie Hind mm. is another... It's another in, it's another wonderful incest ballad. I mean, it comes up a little bit in A Constant Lovers, uh, Frank Perslow's book, uh, edited most recently by Steve Gardham. Uh, I mean, they didn't like it very much. They, the, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, it was quite a controversial song. In The Constant Lovers, it's noted that uh, it's an 18th century concoction. The song is described as a concoction using the story of the Bonnie Hind, which is child 50, so only one below mm. one we're talking about and the format of edward bert lloyd didn't like edward only because of the title he thought the title was boring <laughs> it's a shit title yeah. <laughs> a chap called jw ebsworth uh, who was the editor of the roxborough ballads he died in 1908 so we're talking quite some time ago he called it the worst of imitations this song lucy one Oh, really? Yeah. And David C. Fowler, who's writing during the 1960s, a scholar, he said, uh, the effects of this song are contrived and it is unlikely that it has been long in the oral tradition. Notes that both ballads suddenly appeared in Scotland at about the same time, circa 1770. And Child's version came from those appearances in a book called Mm. Heard Scott Songs, which you've already mentioned. They kind of pull out an interesting alternative version. And that's uh, a Norwegian song, the story of Margaret and Olaf. Oh, Margaret is the daughter of a Norwegian king. She gets sent to a convent, but on her way, she's assaulted by Olaf, who eventually turns out to be her brother. And when she discovers that she's pregnant, she sets off back to the convent, but she's pursued by her father, the king, who demands to know who the father of the child is. And when she refuses to tell him, the king burns down the convent with Margaret in it. 
Um, but Olaf arrives on the scene and douses the flames with his own heart's blood, Nick. My God. Isn't that a good ending? It's very good. <laughs> I mean, mad. Totally mad. Slightly more exciting than... Uh, than... It is. There's a lot, a lot more happens. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't clocked that. That's amazing. That's a, what a that's a big one. They do, they do have to just go a bit bigger, don't they? Mm. Our, our cousins in the Nordic countries. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so that's, I mean, arguably a better narrative. That's, I mean, that sounds amazing. Um, Expect this on Nick Hart sings one Norwegian folk song. Yeah, that, that's, that'd be quite good, wouldn't it? Yeah, so the Bonnie Hind we talked about as being similar, another another kind of incesty one. There is another song, a Scots song called Sheath and Knife, which is also in Child. This is the one that's Child 16, but Roud 3960. Um, there's an extraordinary version of it by Ewan McCall. I can't work out where his version comes from because I haven't, clocked it, it may he may have tinkered about with it but honestly like a, such a such an extraordinary performance there was a sister and her brother the sun gazed the wet warm east entirely loved each other good gift we had never been sent Again, the story of that one is a brother and sister. She's pregnant with his child, and she she's about to give birth, and sort of very it's tra- very tragically awful. She sort of she asks him to, when when he hears her cry out to to shoot her with a with an arrow. There's a very piece of sort of very strange wordplay in which my first instinct was that he he refers to having lost a sheath and a knife. So obviously my first thoughts were that the knife being, <laughs> the obvious thing is that the knife being his penis. Mm. Obviously the word vagina is from the Latin for a sheath. But actually actually, I, I quickly realised what, what it means. The knife he refers to is his child and the sheath being his sister, the child's mother. Mm. And he talks about having lost this, uh, this, 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 you know, and the, the his parents or whoever it is, Says, oh, will you? Oh, you can get far better ones. He said, I'll never get better, better of either or whatever it is. Very strange, weird, kind of slightly uncomfortable piece of wordplay. But, um, but yes, it's uh, it's it's re- that's a really kind of dramatic one. Again, not very many versions of it. I think there are a few versions from some of the Scots travellers. I mean, that's a really extraordinarily eff- affecting song. It's very. The la- some of the language and that is just it has more kind of emotional pull to it I think than certainly than Lucy One does. Yeah. It's it's an extraordinary song. It's 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 probably a better song overall <laughs> than Lucy <laughs> than Lucy One is. So yeah, so there are lots of relatives. You know, I mean, there are lots of songs. It, it turns out, or at least a fair few that deal with that very very grisly subject of of incest. You know, it's something which has always been um, and is still, obviously, a huge, huge taboo. Mm. <clears throat> it's something that continues to sort of horrify. And I get, you know, going back to the, the my slightly lazy comparison to those kind of sensationalist magazines that people read, you know, it's there is a lot of people, people, 
you you find those stories, you know, popping up. It's very sort of Jerry Springer, mm. Jeremy Kyle. Look at the look at the depths of depravity to which other other people have. Do you think that's the interest then? I don't know. I think it's. I think it's. I think it would have always been a, a sensational story. You know what I mean? It's, there has always been a huge taboo around it. In well, I mean, it, our... the, the, the thing is that you, you've got so many versions. I mean, obviously, you've chosen to record a version yourself. One interesting point that sort of pops up in the research is that Kate Bush did a song called "The Kick Inside," which mm. in in 1993, proud 1993, should we call it? <laughs> Um, that's a joke. She she wrote a song called "The Kick Inside," and an early demo version includes the lines "You and me on the bobbing knee, welling eyes from identifying with Lizzie Wan's story." Mm. Oh, I'd never clocked that. Uh, the journalist Tim Chipping uh, he wrote an article a number of years ago about Kate Bush's connections with traditional uh, songs. Mm-hmm. Her interest in it, and I'll put the link to that in the in the description below. But yeah, as I say, I mean, tons of people have done it, haven't they? I mean, the, the list goes on. I've got, obviously, we've talked about Martin Carthy. We, you know, there's Hedy West, Frankie Armstrong, Martin Simpson, Spires and Bowden, you mentioned before, Jim Murray and Bubs on 2008's Low Culture album. Mm. Only a couple of days ago, I heard Frankie Archer doing a version. Mm. It just seems to be a song that attracts people. Uh, hugely, doesn't it? But we can't be related. What's me related? You're a devil in a red dress. Confess that you're Satan. See, then there's a child huh, in your womb. You only speak lies. You never speak the truth. So before the bump hits the world, I did what I do. Cause there won't be no rules. So we won't say I do. And by and by, his mother comes home and sees what he has done. What is the blood that stains your clothes? Come tell me, Geordie one. The blood that stains my... So I suppose, the, I suppose the thing is, for me, the thing that attracts me most to it, and I think is probably the same for a lot of people, which is the thing we haven't touched on yet, mm. is that musically it is a particularly fascinating little specimen. Or at least the, my version of it is. <laughs> I mean, not my version. I mean, the version that I sing is the, the, the Charlotte Dan... Cottenham version. The recording that I've made of this is a particularly <laughs> version. That's not what I meant, and you know it, John Wilkes. Well, Bronson, the man who found the tunes for the child ballads, uh, he said of this song uh, that the music speaks of a continuous and unbroken tradition, and that where this ballad has been learned, i.e. in the oral tradition, it has neither made a vague impression nor been confused, which is a roundabout way of saying people seem to dig it Hmm. why do people seem to dig it what is it about it i haven't been able to actually hear other the melodies for other versions of this because i maybe i haven't been looking at the american ones um but the melody for the cotton version could be said to be in the lydian mode i'm careful to say could be said to be because i don't want to imply that sort of these folk songs were conceived within the framework of the church modes, because actually a lot of the modes that lots of these songs have variable, have mutable notes in them. So anyway, we'll get onto the positives of that another time. Basically, it's got a sharp four in it. What does that mean? What does that mean? Let me get an instrument to demonstrate. So there are seven notes that are used in this song. 
This is note one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one. Yeah, so essentially a normal major scale. The fourth note is a semitone above the third note and two semitones below the fifth note. But in this song, uh, that fourth degree of the scale is a semitone sharp. So it's pretty unusual. It's closer to the f to note five than it is to note three, which is pretty unusual. And I I actually don't know of any other examples. It produces a very particular effect. You know of it in other traditions? Uh, you get it, you get it quite a lot in Norway. A lot of instrumental music in Norway even is in in Lydian mode. Has a sharp four. Lots of that um, hardanger repertoire is. It's very significant in like lots of um, music from the Mande cultural world. Lots of like music from like Mali places like that. Mali Guinea. In lots of music from northern India, I know about you know lots of Kawali music that that will have sharp fours. You know, I mean they they is a free for all basically once you get there. But there are lots of places that use it. Um, but it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare here. Um, and it does create a sort of very interesting effect. There is an inst there is an instability. Hold on, I'm going to get the guitar again. You know, most if we're playing in a normal major scale, there it's all everything. Everything is always pulling you back to the one. The one is always, you know, safe and uh, uh, sort of. But there's something about having that sharp four. It, it sort of actually seems, it feels like it wants to pull you to, towards note five a lot more. You know what I mean? It, which is a sort of, it almost feels like f f note five is the kind of, the, the any port in a storm, that's the safe, that temporary safe harbour. There's something about it that, yeah, that, that sort of is, feels unstable and slightly unsettled, slightly dreamlike even. I mean, that's why I love singing this song and why I love sort of recording it and coming up with things, to, you know, ways of accompanying it, which was, it's just so, it's so wonderful to be able to play, play with something, with with that kind of colour, you know, play with this, this, to sing a song with that kind of colour in it. Tell me about your approach to it. So when you come to a song like Lucy Wan, or when you when you came to Lucy Wan, it's the, obviously the melody that's grabbed you first. Um, I get the impression that it's almost the melody and not much else that really, really gets you here. To tell me a little bit about the recording of it. I know you did it during lockdown and you're sat in that room that's just littered with instruments littered absolutely littered with them so actually this song i've no i've known for years and i have sung for years unaccompanied but actually i realized my, looking back at it now my text is very different to the collected version i think i kind of like must have misremembered things and probably nicked lines from edward as well mm -hmm. nicked verses from edward and stuff so it's slightly different to to the collected version lyrically so i would sometimes do it at gigs unaccompanied and then with this when i came to recording my latest album I thought maybe I'd give it a go, but I wanted to do something which was kind of fairly free and not particularly metered, and I sort of, so I didn't want to use guitar. So I think, if I remember rightly on the album, it's sort of lots of viola de gamba and clarinet. Mm. 
so the clarinet kind of has moments of playing around the melody or playing little improvisations around the melody, but is also following the melody whilst whilst I'm singing. So obviously I recorded them separately. Mm. It's a very different process. So I think I, what I probably did was record some drones, sing to a drone, mm. and then play along to my singing with the clarinet. And then I think I probably recorded the improvised, the instrumental sections afterwards. Once all of that was put together, I re-recorded the drones on the files, which allowed me a bit of an opportunity to kind of occasionally respond to other things that were going on. So it wasn't just pure kind of drones. Mm. Um, if a bit, it was a long time ago, and I'm not sure if that is exactly how I, how I did it. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to hearing the unaccompanied version that we'll stick at the end of this recording. Oh, yeah. Podcast. I forgot about that. You can yeah. show us how wonderfully it can be sung. <laughs> Challenge. Can you do it in one take? I remember last on the last series, you came back to me after one of them. And you were like, one take? Yes. So let's see what you can manage this time. Yeah. Can you outdo yourself? I mean, how I'll do, do you, you can't outdo it? I'll do it in half a take. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a version that you particularly like from other people's recordings? Or did you... Is it largely one of those ones that you've taken from manuscripts and just made yourself? No, so actually, I think I, I think I probably did learn, learn the bare bones of it from listening to Spires and Bowden years ago. I mean, I won't, I won't have listened to that their version of it for, for probably ten years. I tend to do this with a song. It's like once I've kind of got it in my repertoire and I've got a version of it, I kind of just let let it sit there and fester and take on a life of its own and forget things and add things or you know what I mean. Mm. So um, so it's been a long time, um, since. Uh, I've listened to any other version. Anything else that we can say about Lucy One? I suppose the thing I, I really like about this song is that it it typifies my relationship more generally with English with the English ballad tradition, which is to say what I think is wonderful about these songs is that they are weird and wonderful and as weird and as wonderful as, as any other music tradition. And I think it's a very important thing for us as English people to recognise that we're capable of weird, wonderful little things. We are not just the default culture. Sorry to rattle that off that off again. I know I go on about it a lot. But for me, too, so the fact that this song, which is as weird and as wonderful as any in the tradition, comes from, you know, five miles away from where I grew up, is really important, actually, to me. And um, it, it really goes to prove sort of how <clears throat> how odd and how valuable this music is. You know, the fact that we don't know how old it is, the fact that it has this strange, this, this horrible, terrible subject matter, this very beautiful sort of archaic structure to it, the fact that it's in this bizarre mode. It's a golden little treasure and it, and to paraphrase Kazuo Shiguro, it's, it was in my back garden. <laughs> Very good. I mean, you don't have to travel the world anymore, do you? You've seen everything. You've seen it all, Nick. It was just right I've, there waiting for you. I've seen it all, yeah. I don't have to sit up watching videos of koali singers all evening. I can just go five miles up the road. It's good, isn't it? Very good. <laughs> Huge thanks to Nick Hart there for his time and his considerable knowledge. Uh, and of course, you can see Nick perform on September the 28th at Cecil Sharp House. And I highly recommend you do because I've seen him countless times and he's never anything short of brilliant. 
Um, before Nick sings us out with his unaccompanied version of Lucy One, I'd just like to thank the English Folk Dance and Song Society for their ongoing support, especially Peter Craig and Nick Wall, the librarian, uh, for their help in setting this up and their uh, invaluable research. I'd like to thank Rachel Wilkinson and my friendly writers at tradfolk.co for all they do to keep that website going. And I'd also like to thank... Uh, our monthly subscribers uh, who give us a little bit here and there just to show their appreciation. If you'd like to do that yourself, you can do it by heading over to tradfolk.co. As I say, all of the information from today's webcast, all the links that you need, all the information on the songs, that you will find on tradfolk.co. So head over there and have a look. Before the end of the month, we'll be back with the second episode, and that's with Hannah Martin of Edge Larks and the Gig Spanner Big Band, and of course, Sykes Martin. So listen out for that, and we'll see you soon. Here is Nick Hart with his unaccompanied version of Lucy One. Lucy, she sits at her father's door, weeping and making moan. Along then come her own brother dear, what ails thee, Lucy, one? I ail, I ail, dear brother, she says, I'll tell you the reason why. It's there is a child between my two sides, it's of you, dear brother, and I. While he has drawn his long broad sword which hung down by his knee And he has cut it off fair Lucy one's head And her fair body in three Oh what put the blood on your clothes my son Oh son come tell to me well, that is the blood of my good greyhound. She would not run for me. Your greyhound's blood was never so thick. Son, come tell to me. Then that is the blood of my good grey mare. She would not ride for me. Your grey mare's blood was never so thin. Son, come tell to me, then that is the blood of my gay god's hawk, she would not fly for me. Your god's hawk's blood, it was never so red, son, come tell to me, then that is not the blood of my gay god's hawk, but the blood of my sister Lucy. Oh, what will you do when your father comes to know? Son, come tell to me. I'll put my foot on board of some ship and I'll sail to some foreign country. And what will you do with your houses and land? Oh, son, come tell to me. i leave them all to my children so small. By one and by two and by three. And when will you return to your old home again? Sun, come tell to me. When the sun and the moon dance over yonder's hill. 
and that well it never may be.